and to some sort of sporting event, whether it's basketball, maybe that's not a thing so much here, rugby, football, or real football. You can decide which is which. We know that attending a sporting event properly, though, is not simple. You can't walk into a sporting event like this, right? In a jacket and tie. You can't go in expecting to get a bit of sleep. You've got to go ready, which means wearing your favorite team on your shirt and prepared to cheer for your side. That's what you've got to be ready to do, right? And so that comes with some responsibilities to go to a sporting event. You have to be ready to shout for your team and shout against the other team. Now, in Alabama, we are really good at that last part. There's this big rivalry between Auburn University and the University of Alabama. And the thing is, some people hate their rival as much, if not more, than they love their own team. And on game day, people in the stands are more than ready to cry out against their opponent. And now here's the thing, right? The church ought to be ready to cheer for the right things together. And the trouble is that sometimes people think that cheering for the right things means trash-talking those who disagree with them, sometimes even over the smallest of issues. Churches fall into this trap of adopting that team mindset, but instead of cheering together for Christ, we start jeering at each other over disagreements. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17, Paul addressed an issue where Christians took sides against one another concerning various teachers who had come through the congregation. Okay, so last time uh, we were together in this book, we saw Paul's greeting and his initial thanksgivings in verses 1 to 9. And the thing to remember for our present passage was the previous verses were meant to remind these Corinthians about their callings as Christians. Their Christian calling should define their identities. And, and remember most pointedly that patrons in Corinth were people who took financial and social responsibility for community. So patrons were people who took responsibility for communities. That was in the air of Corinth. And Paul adopted some of this patronage language to explain that Jesus Christ is the church's patron. He is responsible for us. He procured for us that gift of, of guiltlessness. That is justification. And he confirmed it. He applied it to us by preaching the gospel through Paul. In other words, the, the patron Jesus gathered his community by gospel preaching. And that background of Jesus Christ as the one patron for our church community becomes really important in our text as Paul confronted dissensions within Christ's community. So the main point 
is those who belong to Christ and are baptized into him should live peaceably with one another. Those who belong to Christ and are baptized into him should live peaceably with one another. And we're going to see this in three points. The argument from the Savior, the argument from the sacrament, and the argument for salvation. So, first, the argument from the Savior. Okay, if you've, if you've spent any time in Paul's letters, one thing you probably know that you've noticed about the way he writes is he likes to stack up these phrases that add really rich detail to everything he says, but sometimes they can make the issue less than clear. What's the main thing going on here? Like in our passage. (laughs) And this passage introduced the issue that occupies this book's first four chapters. So the thing happening here is going to take up the large amount of the first section of this book, chapter 1 to 4, and it concerns divisions in the church. So in this point, what we're going to do is establish what problem Paul addressed and look at how he used Christ's name as a solution. So read with me verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Okay, there there are certainly layers of theological depth here, but we can pare down, we can trim these verses to the most basic assertions that I appeal to you to agree for, or because, you know my thing by now, right? For should probably be translated because. It means that. I don't know why we don't do it. Anyway, I appeal to you to agree because it has been reported that you are quarreling. So we can paraphrase that down even further. I urge you to agree because I've heard that you are disagreeing. It's an obvious point. And so now, in light of that, the main thing going on here, we can open up some of these details. Paul made this exhortation by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. I think that we, in our time and place, the fact that we're in the Christian church, we hear Christ's name so often, sometimes we can let it quit having its proper effect. It's just another time that we're saying this name. But remember here, because that's not the way it should be. And remember here that Paul already triggered that patronage background, right? Jesus Christ is the patron, the divine patron who has taken responsibility for this community, this fellowship, as he put it, of Christians, So, right, okay, as we go about our lives, we likely don't take tremendous notice of the Royal Mail postman, right? As they come around and deliver our post, our mail, they're a common sight. And even though we are grateful that they bring our post to us, we still tend to dismiss their presence 
as not very authoritative. All right? On the other hand, though, if a, if a messenger directly from the queen knocked on your door, you would have a great deal of time for them, I would imagine. What's the difference in those situations? They're both bringing you messages that you need, and they both have a, a royal background, right? It is the, the royal male. But that's the difference in the way that we should hear this exhortation by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It carries all the direct authority of the crown, the crown of heaven. It drops the weight of Paul speaking directly for the church's heavenly patron. He's, he's bringing them to account for the one who, to the one who has claimed responsibility for them. Their heavenly patron who has bought these people through his own blood. So, this is not the postman calling for unity in the church, but the queen's direct messenger, more so the son of God's messenger. The, that royal messenger carries a lot of authority because they come from the monarch. The one who has responsibility for this community called the United Kingdom. And likewise, Paul's appeal to the name of Christ carries all the strength of appealing to the one who is responsible for this community of the church. Christ is the one who has taken us under his care. He procured for us that guiltless status and has committed to sustain us as guiltless before God's throne until his return at the end of history. He will not let the benefit of justification lapse. It cannot be questioned, as we saw last time. And the the force of this appeal is to agree with one another. Now, if we jump back up to verse 2, we actually see that Paul has already primed the pump for this exhortation where he writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and here we go, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So, Paul, from the outset, in his address to these people, bound these Christians together, not only with themselves as one community, but also with all Christians everywhere. Those joined as they who have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we saw last time, didn't we, how Paul in verse 2 quoted Joel 2.32 it's coming up. God wants us to know something about that in his good providence. Quoted Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in verse 2, Paul applied that verse so clearly, so clearly, about the one true triune God of Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ. Showing that in the story of the Bible... Jesus Christ is the one true God upon whom we call 
for our rescue from sins. And that, that point is relevant for us because Paul has appealed to the name of Christ to make the Corinthians agree together since they are called together to be saints. He appealed to, did you see it, our common Lord and Savior as the linchpin of our agreement together in order to show us that actually we don't even have the right to make dissensions amongst ourselves. We all belong to the same patron. We belong to the same Savior. And we are part of His community, His fellowship. We too here today, right now, are part of those who in every place also call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We belong to Christ together. And the argument from the Savior is that we belong to Him, have been attached to His name, and since we all belong to Him, we must agree. Plain and simple. That brings us to our second point, the argument from the sacrament. So we considered... How the name of Christ is the first reason that Christians must agree and the appeal to the name of Christ, which is the the singular and uniting source of salvation for all Christians, was only Paul's first point of appeal, though. And so this point turns to look at the next leg of Paul's discussion about the unity of the church, which concerns baptism. So in verse 12... Paul clarified the nature of quarreling in his congregation, this congregation. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Stephen, or I follow Christ. And so what's going on is some clearly had aligned themselves with certain honored teachers in the early church. Some labeled themselves as Paul's group. Right? So, we stand with the founding pastor. We've been members since the beginning and learned from the man himself. And others labeled themselves as Apollos' group. We stand with Paul's learned and eloquent successor. And then others claimed Cephas, who we know is also called Peter, right? The Apostle Peter. We stand with the Apostle Peter. He preached the first Christian sermon. After all, he's the Apostle to the Jews. That's our guy. And finally, I think this might be the word, because you know these people. The the holier-than-thou answer, we just follow Jesus. I mean, you've met this person, right? I mean, when, especially, you know, they, they learn here for you tonight that you're a Presbyterian. They say, oh, you must be a Calvinist. I just follow Christ. Do, I mean, don't we know what this, I mean, even, even if we don't have it going on, we know what this situation looks like. Don't, don't, have we not met those people in the church who drop names 
like nobody's business to make themselves look better. I was a doctor or whoever last week. Would you, would you like me to, to mention you next time I'm with him? Well, I, I hold the truly reformed view and or practice or whatever. But so many have become less reformed than me. We, we love to form camps and hole up together so that we can feel special. Don't we? It's like going to that sports match. Dressed to the nines to support your team. But all the people wearing this year's jersey take sides shouting against those wearing last year's jersey for the same team. If you were really a fan, you'd have this shirt. You would be in the the new shirt camp if you really pulled for our team. And Paul's response to that sort of mindset is actually a... I mean, it's a bit shocking. If you really consider what he's said here, it should take you aback. Because the sum of his response, as we see in verse 15, is, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. (laughs) Could, Could you imagine hearing that? Your minister? I mean, just imagine. Obviously, hypothetically. I mean, you got in a bad mood and started spouting off to me about how you'd gotten whatever doctrine so much more correct than everyone else. And what if my response was to you? I'm so glad I'm not the one who baptized you. (sighs) I'm glad somebody else applied the mark of entrance into God's community to you because I would be ashamed if it were me. I mean, that is is a startling, tough criticism when you actually think about that. No matter how you slice it, we can sort of soften the blow any which way we want. That's tough to handle. And in this case, although he acknowledged a few exceptions... Paul was glad that he had not baptized any of them. He had done that. He had avoided baptizing them, as we see in verse 15, to prevent anyone from linking their baptism to him, to his name. So these people who create smaller teams within the church, they've just missed the point. Paul Paul used a, a set of rhetorical questions right the answer is obviously no to point this out in verse 13 is christ divided no he's one was paul crucified for you definitely not it was the lord christ or were you baptized into the name of paul no we baptize in the name of the one true triune god Christ is not divvied up, but is the one and only Lord and patron 
over his one community. And therefore, we should not try, or not even try, we should not form parties within the church where we link ourselves to specific teachers as if that is our group. None of those teachers died for our sins, right? Why do their names matter? Nor were we baptized into the name of any teacher. Most pointedly, no one group that is legitimately Christian has exclusive claim on Christ. We, so here's the, here's the thing about that. Okay, we cannot use rhetoric that implies that we belong to Christ and that other members in good standing, especially in fellow formed churches, don't belong to Christ. My God would never. Don't speak like that. Because there's this, there's this old adage, right? That blood is thicker than water. And the point was, of course, that biological connections are more important than your Christian connections. They say that the DNA in blood is more significant than the water of baptism. That's the idea. Our passage tells us, though, that that's completely wrong. You, you need to see all of those who have been baptized into Christ as your most important family. God has created this family, which is eternal. And now here's, okay. I would be remiss as an enthusiastic Presbyterian not to point out that Paul said in verse 16 that he baptized Stephanus' household. Okay, so you know where this is going, right? Which points us to the broader issue of how the early church baptized their infants. We've got to take these theological detours from time to time. So, we read two accounts in Acts 16 of household baptisms. Lydia, who sold purple goods, was converted. And then in verses 14 and 15 of Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was baptized and her household as well. Now, notice there, if you go back and read it at some point, notice we are told only that she believed, but the household received baptism. Now, later in that same chapter, the Philippian jailer converted, and he and his household received baptism. And now, verses 33 and 34 are particularly interesting. He was baptized at once, he and all his family, and jump ahead a little, and he rejoiced along with his entire household who that he had believed in God. And so uh, there's all sorts of discussion about, well, they all must have believed. But the reason, whether they did or not, the reason described in verse 34 for their baptism as a family was that he believed, and yet they were all baptized. Throughout the scripture, God works through families, which is why we so 
fervently pray for our families. God commanded circumcision be applied to believers and their children. And in the New Testament, God continued the principle of extending the sign of the covenant to believers and her children. Note this about the broad story of the Bible. We're whole Bible people that he began this principle of including children with Abraham, whom Paul directly links to the new covenant in Galatians three and four. So Abraham isn't Moses is the narrative or the, the point of that narrative, right? An inclusion of our children begins with Abraham, not Moses. Acts two thirty eight and thirty nine. Peter preaches, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Baptism with the name of the triune God, to start, I mean, I hope that was helpful, but I want to start to draw it, the whole discussion about it, back to our main point. Baptism with the name of the triune God is the outward, outward mechanism, God's tool for transitioning us externally into the fellowship, the community of Christ, where we receive all the privileges of being a member of his covenant. But that's the catch, right? Proper baptism moves everyone into the same community. There's one faith, one baptism. And this means that we cannot create factions within the church because we are baptized into the same Christ who died equally for all of His people. Paul's argument from the sacrament was that baptism creates a unified community. And that brings us to our third point, the argument for salvation. Okay, so we, we saw, let's catch us back up. We saw that Paul argued from the Savior, who is the justifying patron of the fellowship of saints, and from baptism, which ties us together as the family of Christ, that we must be a unified That we must be unified and not live in conflict with one another. And we need to see why these arguments are so important. So read verse 17 with me. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Of its power. So the first word again for because. So Paul said he was thankful that he had not baptized many of these readers because his job was not baptizing but preaching. And the import of this is that baptism has no meaning if it is not connected to the proclamation about Jesus Christ. Because we are tied together in Christ's church, bound in the gospel, we, we have to learn to love and appreciate one another. You can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. And in this case, 
God has picked your family for you. There, okay, so there's one time I, I preached on the unity of the body of Christ for from Corinthians 12. And I tried to think of the most ridiculous thing that I, I could to illustrate our need for unity despite disagreement. So, so I talked about the danger of church splits over the color of the drapes. There weren't any drapes in this sanctuary. And after the service, someone came up to me, came up to me and said, uh, so I guess you haven't heard about the incident about the curtain in the church halls. Christians get so very passionate about very specific things, don't they? Especially in our reformed circles. Maybe not the drapes. I hope not. We care really deeply, though, about being right about what God's Word teaches. But the devil loves to divide God's people over small things. And, and you should note that when we think about disagreeing with one another, that yeah, you may be right. And the devil would love to divide you from other Christians because you're right. He is at work in all of these things, even in good things. Because it's not, it is not, hear me clearly, really clearly. It is not that you should not care about those things. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't worry about the specifics of doctrine. I, it would be hard for many people to accuse me of that sort of thing. Probably the opposite is more true. But when you feel passionately about your specific views, you cannot. You can't. You just can't. You can't demonize, disparage, or separate from other believers. We, we have, we must have to get along and discuss things peacefully. Now here's the thing, the, the biggest application for LCPC at this time of life is that we should be so immensely grateful. Don't overlook that. I'm so deadly serious about that. We are, as far as I know, we are not torn by unnecessary arguments. There are not clear factions in this church. People, as far as I can tell, genuinely love and like each other, even when they see things differently. No one is overtly and overly insistent on their own way. We calmly and reasonably discuss our differences without castigating one another. So, beg God that that would continue. Really? Pray we would be unified and winsome in and for Christ? Because... Because it doesn't matter if we get all the details right if we're not united in Christ. We see that in verse 17. If you are, if you are totally right 
but you're divided from other Christians. You are not living for his glory anyway. And we see in verse 17, the cross's power is emptied if there are obvious reasons for people to become Christians. All right, do you see, do you see that that's the point? God loves, God loves to win people through the weakness of his messengers so that he gets the credit. Put silly people in pulpits to proclaim his word. So, are we then clinging to Christ as the power of our salvation? We, we cannot hold, listen carefully, and I'm speaking to myself as much as everyone else, we cannot hold the precision of our theology or the prestige of our teachers as the reason for our salvation. You're not justified by being right about theology, as good as it is to be right about theology. We cannot even trust our baptism as the external transition from the world to the church. We can only trust in the Lord Jesus. He was crucified for people to wipe away their sins. He died so that we might live. We were baptized into Christ. It's not the baptism. It's the into Christ. And the power of His cross is that He saves those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And so let's turn to Him now in prayer. Father God, we are, we are deep. We want to pause now and be deeply grateful for the church you've given us. We're thankful for each and every member of this congregation. We're thankful for those who regularly attend and who are devoted and not members for various reasons. God, we are thankful to be the body of Christ. We're thankful to have that one patron over us who has purchased our justification, our eternal life, our citizenship in heaven has taken responsibility. And we are thankful that each of us is joined to that same Savior. And that you have marked each and every person in the same way with using the simple thing of water to unite a family responsible to one another that has to love one another. We're thankful for that. We take that as such a burden. We're in a community that has to love us. Let us give thanks. And as we are thankful, let that rebound to others in love that they are amongst us. Protect us from dissension. Protect us from factions. Protect us from disagreements that would divide us. Help us to consider well and deeply the things of your scripture, and we know that that will result in minutely different points of view at times. And we pray that even amongst that, that we would be a unified church who loves one another because Jesus Christ is reflected in each one of us and who has so worked in us that we see that we are called together to be saints from every place. 
So help us to do that well. Help us to do well in being saints together. And help us to know that as we go back into this world that we have this landing place, this family where we are received and loved. And that that would help us as we go into the world, as we face people who would reject us, who would scoff at us, who would simply just rather not hear us. Help us to know that our family is not there, but here. And that our citizenship is in heaven, where we will all be joined one day in the same kingdom, under the same king who has died to rescue his people. Give us faith in that Savior now, whether we need to trust in him for the first time or be refreshed in that glorious gospel truth. Grant faith this evening. And we pray these things for the sake of Christ. Amen.